I'm glad to be here, and um, all of those June announcements feel like they're not around the corner with the weather, but I'm told it's May, so uh, we'll see if that actually pans out or not. Um, but, man, I, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm grateful that we have the Word of God to open, and you know, every part of our gathering is not like accidental. Like We worship first because He's worthy of worship. And you might not know that or feel that. Um, that might not be where you're at right now. But um, the church for 1,500 plus years has done that, where it's, it's very appropriate as we get together. We're not like trying to recreate a rock concert or something. Like we're saying, hey, what would be better when we come together than to worship and to, to make it about him, not make it about our little religious club, uh, than to pray to him. Uh, then to hear him speak to us. You know, I think sometimes we're like, God, I wish you could just speak to me. And it's like he has, and he does. Um, and this is one of the key ways that he does speak to us through his word. And so when we open up his word together, it's to hear from him and to together hear from him. So then we can lock arms together and walk this out together. And we have, we started preaching through the book of John in January of 2021. So, so well over a year ago, and next Sunday will be our last Sunday in the book of John, and it's, I feel like it's been a monumental book that we go through. I mean, each, each book we've preached through, whether it was Daniel in March of 2020 when we started going through that book, and we didn't plan knowing that what would happen. But to me, each book that we've gone through as a church, I think we've gone through four or five now, feels to me like it's like hot off the press. It's like, man, was this just written yesterday for us, for our church? And that's the power of the Word of God. It is living and active. And um, today is the day that Peter has been not looking forward to. Because today is the, t the day where Peter knows he is going to meet with Jesus and he has betrayed Jesus. He has deeply hurt him. And it's made me think about, have I ever betrayed people? Have I ever deeply hurt people that I love? Have I ever, Peter deeply betrayed his best friend. And I was thinking, like, have I ever deeply hurt someone that I love, and it made me think about a time in 2017 that I actually betrayed some of my closest friends. We were all pastors together in Oklahoma City. We had been through tons of stuff together, um, leading a church together. We had planted a few churches together in the Oklahoma City area. It just been through so much, and as starting in 2016, feeling a call to move back here and plant a church in the town that I grew up in and, and what that would mean for God calling the people that he was going to call. Um, 2016 was a big year of prayer, but 2017, some decisions had to be made, okay? So some decisions had to be made in 2017 about what church planting was going to look like. And I had to decide 
if I was going to join a thing that I'd been accepted at. So without getting into all the details of, of what happened in 2017, I was offered, so there's about 100 guys who, who tried to get into this thing called Fellowship Associates. And I had just been like, I probably won't get accepted, but let me just send in my application. And what these people do is they fly you all over the country. They, they've collectively had been a part of planting over 100 churches, some as far as Dubai and the United Emirates and some in Kansas City and stuff. And I just really respected the way that these people spend a year leading people through church planting. And uh, so I had applied and got accepted. And they're like, we're only going to accept six people this year that we're going to pour into for the next year. So I, I felt like, oh man, this could be so good for the church plant. This could be so good for me personally and all this stuff. Well, the people closest to me didn't think I should do it. They're like, Tim, we don't think you need to do that. We don't think you need to spend all that time flying around and stuff. And I got to this point where I was like, it was almost like I was Gollum and I was looking at the church plant saying, but my precious, like, like if I don't go through Fellowship Associates, maybe this church plant won't be all that it should be, and, and maybe it's not going to be able to be, and I just wanted it, the church to be alive, and I wanted it to be healthy, and I wanted people to come to Jesus, and, and I was like, man, uh, this thing has to be amazing. And so I started getting this like death grip on this church plant that didn't, wouldn't have a name for over a year and a half. We just called it the Iowa church plant. And, and so in one week, I knew I was going to have to decide, do I go to Fellowship Associates or not? And I knew if I told my closest friends what I was thinking, they would try to talk me out of it. So I actually accepted the role to go to Fellowship Associates without letting my closest friends know because I didn't want them to talk me out of it. I wanted to instead, like, kind of, like, not ask permission, but ask forgiveness. Was, now, I wouldn't have told you this at the time, but, um, but I, I accepted the position, and then the following week, I told uh, Josh Curry, Sujith Jacob, who's now in Mumbai, India, planting a church, Jeff Nine, David Adair, uh, some of my closest buddies, and I was like, hey, I accepted the position last week. And they were like, you did What? You didn't tell us? Like, what do you... And this, the sermon isn't about me and my betrayal of my friends, but it... Have you ever had that time where, like, you can't sleep, and if you do fall asleep, you wake up in a cold sweat, and you feel like you could just throw up at any moment? Like, I felt that way for days. And I was like, I can't believe that I had such a death grip on this church plant. I can't believe that I was, like feeling like Gollum in the ring and, and feeling this like, this is my precious, it has to be amazing. And I was, I was willing to do, to stab my friends in the back, basically, for the sake of this church plant. And man, I just like, it rocked my world. And I was like, here, two weeks ago, we, I had the best relationship with the, with, with the church that I was pastoring, and they were all gung-ho to support us for maybe the rest of our lives in this Iowa church plant. And now, like, I might get fired this week. And like the relationship might be over and everything I'd hoped for might not happen. And the people I love most are now like confused and being like, what, what's our relationship now? And man, so thankfully, after a lot of conversation, thankfully after me repenting and just being out of my mind, brokenhearted about it and repenting to these guys and these guys 
were far more gracious than they should have been towards me. And them ending up being like, and I was like, I'm resigning, I'm not going to, I'm backing out of Fellowship Associates, that was so stupid. And they were like, no, we, we actually think you should do it, we just don't think you should have done it that way. And so we still want you to do that, and we'll do a thing over here. And so it ended up really, the relationship got repaired. And to this day, I'm so grateful for the healthy relationship that we have with our sending church. Uh, not an untested, it's been a, a tested relationship, but I can thankfully say it's a healthy relationship that even was deepened through what seemed to me like the most threatening thing that was me betraying my friends. And I don't know how Peter felt. I don't know how Peter felt. But I know how I felt when I treated my best friends the way that I regretted instantly treating them. And I wonder, has Peter not been sleeping? Did Peter wonder if everything was lost? Was Jesus so disappointed that Peter denied Jesus at Jesus' deepest need? Is it Jesus' deepest need that Peter, who was ready to cut someone's head off in the Garden of Gethsemane, is now saying, I don't even know who this guy is, and was so focused on his own self-preservation. Was Jesus very likely so disappointed in Peter that maybe Peter would not be part of Jesus' plans moving forward? So we pick up in John 21, and I hope that Jesus' heart towards Peter, and even Peter in the midst, all of our stories are different, and, um, but at the same time, Jesus is the same in his heart towards every one of us. So we can watch how he interacts with Peter and see how he'd interact with us and maybe even be able to share stories of how he's interacted with us. So we're picking up in John 21, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, doubting Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So, pause there. Peter likely very likely here, because remember, Peter looked into the tomb with John. Peter went into the tomb with John, and then it says Peter went home. So they're in Jerusalem in the south of Israel, and it says they went home 75 miles north into Galilee. So Peter likely has not seen Jesus since the crucifixion. So he has not seen his best friend, his Savior, since he betrayed him. They haven't had a, a chance to talk. Peter has not had the opportunity to speak to him. And instead of Peter rising to the occasion, he fell back. He did nothing. He denied their friendship. Peter went back home. Jesus had once said to Peter, follow me and you will no longer fish again. If you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men, not fishermen. And they did. They followed him. And then Peter does this lousy job of standing up for Jesus. And then he goes back home. So get this. He does a lousy job standing up for Jesus. Then he goes back home and he's like, I'm going fishing. 
and he does a lousy job going back to his old life. He spends the whole night fishing and catches nothing. I mean, like, I can go fishing and be like, I can catch nothing and be like, well, I fish rarely, my life doesn't depend on it, and, you know, I just threw a few minnows in the water, you know, my kids were with me and I was focusing on them or whatever, um, but for a professional fisherman to spend an entire night fishing and to have zero, you know, I mean, like, even like six would be a bad day, right? But to have zero is like, I stink at following Jesus and I stink at the life I had before I was following Jesus. Bad times have gotten worse. And I'm pretty sure even as Peter is focusing on fishing, maybe trying to hold a conversation with the guys that are in the boat with him, he's certainly continuing to think about Jesus. I'm My own experience, I don't think Peter could get it out of his head. I don't think he could get it out of his heart. What had just happened, what was in the pit of his stomach. And Thomas was with him in the boat. So Thomas could have been like, you can't believe it. We were in the room. Jesus walked through the wall. I said I would never believe unless I could put my finger inside. He lifted up his shirt. I could have put my finger inside. I believed. And I'm sure like Peter was like, awesome. And then kind of like, but he, I wasn't there. And did he, was it purposeful that I wasn't there? Was it because he doesn't want me to be there anymore? Is our relationship not what it used to be? Um, like, is, is, that, is that why? You know, like, I'm, I'm excited for, you know, I'm, I'm excited. But I'm sure Peter still felt that, like, as they were in the boat about, about that. And maybe the disciples even, like, Jesus had walked through walls, but is Jesus still the Jesus we knew? I mean, we just watched him be brutally killed. Is Jesus still as powerful as he was before he was killed? Like, what's new? What's different? All of these things. And then verse 4. Just as day was breaking of a terrible night of fishing, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, verse 5, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. So all night they've been fishing and they have no luck. Luke 5 tells us that they've experienced this before. If you've seen the TV show The Chosen, you know, like this is a really key part of that, of that miniseries. But in Luke 5, it tells us that when Peter first met Jesus, it was Jesus powerfully giving them this miraculous catch of fish that actually was ripping their nets, was causing their boats to sink. And in that conversation, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. So here, some guy on the shore, some... some anonymous guy just tells them, hey, you're just putting the net on the wrong side of the boat. And I mean, obviously they had been trying both sides. You know, they didn't have this policy of we only cast to the right or anything. Like they were trying everything, anything they could think of to have some fish. And for some reason, they actually listened to the guy. I mean, you think about it, very likely the guy on the shore is not a professional fisherman. If he was, they would have known who he was. They would have recognized him. And 
like, why would we listen to this guy? And I think they were just like, well, nothing we've tried all night works. Let's try this. And as they start pulling in this catch, I wonder when they started to wonder. I, I wonder when they were like, hey, this is, this is happening again. There's only been one other time in my life this happened, and it's happening again. Do we actually know who that guy is on shore? And as they start pulling in the fish, John whispers into Peter's ear, it is the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever caught like a huge bass or a large northern or something. It's kind of like an all-consuming task. <laughs> if you have a huge fish on, you're not like, oh, let me uh, check my phone while I'm, you know, reeling in. Like it's all-consuming, right? Catching one large fish. And if your family's with you or one of your kids is catching a big bass, everybody is just like zoomed in, like bird-dogging right on that thing, right? They're catching 153, we learn, large fish. Imagine the chaos and the, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, and they've never had fish like this before. And John says to Peter in the midst of all the chaos, that's the Lord. What would you do? Would you be like, ah, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but look, we got all this fish. Like, I mean, you would, I think the tendency would be, we got to take care of this fish. We've been trying all night, and maybe that's Jesus, maybe it's not, but we got to take care of the fish here. But look what Peter does. Look at the second half of verse 7. The second that John says it is the Lord, when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. So he's not naked, but he's probably got like shorts on and stuff. So he's stripped down for work. So he puts all of his clothes back on, and he just throws himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I mean, picture with maybe all that Peter's been feeling, and he doesn't know how Jesus is going to interact with him. But when he knows Jesus is on shore, the guy he's been thinking about nonstop, even with more fish than they've ever caught before, Peter's like, oh, that's Jesus? Puts on his clothes and he just goes. He's just, however fast I can get to him, I don't care what else is happening in my life. And I think I, I was talking to a friend this week that was like, why do you think he put those clothes on? And my take was, I don't think he was ever planning on getting back in the boat. I don't think he was ever planning on being like, well, I'll leave my stuff here and I'll come back eventually. He's like, I'm this, I'm, I'm, I'm only him, you know, and I'm never planning on coming back here. I'm getting all my belongings and I'm jumping in the water. Verse 9, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Which if you remember the first time, the net was torn and the boats were sinking. So I think Jesus supernaturally not only allowed all those fish, but was keeping the nets together. And I mean, man, you can draw out maybe a lot of lessons just in some of these incidental details. Um, but it's, also, it's always struck me that they recorded 153. T 
too. And uh, Kevin and I, and uh, when uh, uh, Peter, our brother-in-law, was getting married, I remember we went on like a deep sea fishing on, I think it was Lake Michigan together. And, um, and that was, I think, the only time I've ever been like with a kind of a professional fisherman type guy. And I remember like while we were out on the water, I asked him, I was like, hey, what's the most anyone's ever caught? He was like, 27 or something like that. I can't remember the number, but it was something like that. And I was just struck. It was like, no need to think about it. Like when you are, when this is what you do, you know what the top is, you know? Like you know the most you've ever got, you know? And I think, because this was maybe written 20 years later, but for a professional fisherman, it'd be like, hey, how many did we catch? 153. You know, we counted them and we'll never forget. Like we've never caught that many before. And, you know, for Jesus to have made a fire he, he himself had already caught some fish. He had cleaned them. He was cooking them with some bread out as well. Jesus tells, tells them to like bring some as well. He, like we see Peter go back aboard. And so we don't have this like Peter running and giving him a big hug type moment. You know, I think like the conversation is going to come when Jesus invites him into this. And they never forget this. Look at verse 12. Such a great invitation by Jesus. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I think like Jesus' invitation here, come and have breakfast, it's simple. It's crazy simple, and it's powerful. Like he doesn't lay into them. He doesn't say, where were you guys when I most needed you? You know, finally I've gotten you alone. I want to really like correct you. I want to shame you. How could you have deserted me? How could you? Jesus wasn't relying on them to do the things that he said he was going to do. Jesus was relying on himself. Jesus was relying on his own power. He was relying on himself to carry out what he said. There's even a beautiful place in Scripture that says, when you are faithless, I remain faithful. Even the times when we're like, man, I want to follow you and I'm really struggling. He's like, well, I'm not struggling. Like, I'll lead here. I'll lead the way here. And I love that Jesus in the calm, he's the prince of peace. And he can just say simply to some people that maybe their hearts are racing, unsure of who they're going to get when they're talking to Jesus. And realize like, oh, this is, he's just as powerful as he's ever been. He was able to just do a very powerful miracle that he did pre crucifixion, and now he does again to show them, hey, I'm, I'm still the same guy. I'm still able to do these things. Come and have breakfast with me. I've prepared a meal for you. And the reality, too, is that they are probably really thirsty and really hungry. I mean, I know from, like, hunting, man, when I get done hunting, like, I might have, like, just killed 2,000 calories worth of food, but I'm wanting to, like, eat 10, you know, because I'm like, oh, man, and we see this with Esau and scriptures, like, coming off of, like, a full night of hunting and fishing, you're going to be really thirsty, you're going to be really hungry, and Jesus' first inclination is like, hey, let's take care of that. I don't want you hangry as I'm trying to have a conversation with you. Like, I'm going to actually serve you. I'm going to be hospitable to you. 
And once again, uh, when Mary Magdalene first saw Jesus, she knew it was Jesus, but kind of didn't know, she kind of didn't recognize him too. So they knew, okay, this is Jesus, but you kind of look different than you looked before. And the disciples have the same experience. They're like, hey, you know, none of us were going to say that it wasn't Jesus. We all knew it was him, but he does look different. He invites them to have breakfast. Peter knew that they'd have a talk. And what would this talk be like? Had Peter crossed a line that had broke their relationship? Had Peter sinned in a way that just could not be forgiven? Did Jesus still want Peter? And did Jesus still like see in Peter what he had first saw in Peter? Or had that been violated beyond repair? Had Peter done too much and Jesus was going to move on and focus on other people, call others to lead? How would this play out? And I know I've mentioned this, and I don't want to belabor that, but in conversations with others, in conversations in my own head, I know we think this way so much. Oh man, Jesus, you're probably so disappointed. When you think of me, your probably first inclination is a whole bunch of negative emotions. You're probably fed up with me. You're probably wondering, man, maybe I shouldn't have saved him. Maybe I shouldn't have called him to follow me. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have worked in her life knowing what she would do after that. I mean, gosh, that's, uh, that's real life, and this is real life. And Jesus leads the conversation, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and there's some hints that they might have gone on a walk because at a time later, what we'll see next week is Peter's like, hey, how about this guy over here? So it seems like maybe the group has spread out. They, they may still be sitting around like a campfire, but they might also, Jesus might have kind of taken Peter uh, on like a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these other disciples. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So that's the first statement. And I feel like you can feel the humility in Peter. Because Peter was always, you know, has to be the, the leader. Has to be the, the top of the mountain, you know. And Jesus is like, hey, do you love me more than all these other guys? Are you the top dog? Are you the, do you love me more than these guys? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, you know that I love you more than these other guys. I think he's been humbled out of that. He's like, I, I, who am I to say, but you know I love you. You know I love you. Then he said to him, Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is an instance of we know what was said and we know what was not said. We know that there was no, no conversation about betraying Jesus. Uh, 
denying Jesus. Um, and it wasn't like because he wasn't man enough to bring it up or anything like that. He knew what Peter needed in this moment, in this conversation, and it was clear that his plans hadn't changed. Even on the cusp of Peter's greatest failure and such denial, Jesus is entrusting the ones that he's just bought with his blood to Peter. He's saying, tend them, feed them. There's no shame. There's no penance. No shame. No penance. Jesus is not a penance type of guy. Penalty. Jesus doesn't say, here are the six penalties, and once you whip yourself enough, you've, been, you've gotten the punishment that you deserve, and then we'll talk about forgiveness. Jesus is like, I took all of that. I have already taken your penalty. That's what I did on the cross. I was taking all penance so that you can be free. Not just be free to sit on the couch, but like free to be used by Jesus in his mission to reach and to feed and to disciple and to shepherd other people. And with that free love that Peter is receiving, Jesus directs Peter's love. With the love that you have for me, feed my lambs. With the love that you have for me, tend my sheep. With the love you have for me, feed my sheep. I entrust my people to your leadership, to your shepherding, to your care. I got you. Then, Jesus speaks into the future of Peter. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you used to walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Church history tells us that uh, if you go to Rome today and you go to St. Peter's Basilica, um, that there is a giant courtyard outside and there's some pillars set up. And uh, church tradition going way back to the early days said that that's where both Paul and Peter were killed. Paul was killed by being actually like nailed to the ground and other grotesque things happening to him was Paul. Peter was getting crucified. And the story goes that Peter didn't feel like he would be worthy to ever be, to be crucified in the way that Jesus was. He's like, I'm, I'm not worthy for that. So he actually asked to be crucified upside down so that it would not be anything like it, so that, because he just wasn't worthy to be crucified the way that Jesus was. So Jesus tells Peter, you will be crucified. You will leave behind a widow and possibly children. We don't know. We know he's married because his mother-in-law was sick. Um, it will cost you everything to follow me, Jesus tells Peter. It will not be as painful as betraying Jesus, but it will be a different type of pain that you will experience. You will have a ton of pain following me. Your life will end prematurely because of your love for me and because you are following me. 
He tells Peter all of this. And then the last two words that are stunning is he says, you will be crucified for me. You will undergo all of this opposition for following me. And then he says, follow me. After just sharing all of that, he says, follow me. The same thing he told them at the beginning, he says, hasn't changed. Follow me now. And we know that he, he does. Jesus made it clear it's worth it. Following me is worth it. Jesus doesn't regret the first time he told Peter to follow him. Jesus gives no stipulation, no fine print. He says to Peter two words that will change Peter's life. Follow me. And Peter does for the rest of his life. So how about it? How about it for us as we start gleaning all from the book of John that, that we, we have at this, this point, and we'll glean as we go back over it again personally and maybe as a church. But for us, just two big questions I think that we must ask ourselves from this passage. The first one is, do you love Jesus? That was as clearly as, as Jesus could say that to Peter, do you love me? We have to ask ourselves this. Do you love Jesus? Not do you act like you love Jesus, do you hope people around you will think that you love Jesus, but do you love Jesus in the midst of failure, in the midst of not feeling like you're measuring up? Peter didn't give any like, well, you know, let me explain myself here. It was just simple. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? And if so, does he get to direct your love? Does he get to direct your love? Can he say whatever he wants after you say yes? Jesus says, do you love me? And you say yes. And then you're not, but Jesus, don't say anything after that. I don't want, it, I, I don't want you to direct my love. I, I, I want to be the captain of my own soul. But instead, like, if he says, do you love me? And we say yes you know I do, then he gets, can he direct our love? Can he say whatever he wants after you say you love him? Maybe he will tell you to feed his sheep. Maybe he'll say something totally different. Do you love him? Does he get to direct your love? And remember, keep it in the lens. This isn't where we start feeling all like, man, I wish I was a better Christian and stuff like that. Like, don't go there. That's garbage. That's getting on a hamster wheel of performance that just goes in a circle. But to truly, with the humility of a broken Peter that's been exposed, that he's not good enough, he doesn't measure up enough, that's not the question. The question isn't, are you good enough? Do you measure up? The question is, do you love him? Do you love me? And then second, will you follow him? When he says to Peter, follow me, I believe you're in this room. All of us are in this room because Jesus is saying to us, follow me. Follow me. And if so, does he get to say where? So if you do love him, does he get to direct your love? And then if you will follow him, does he get to say where? Because Peter would have sure liked like, oh, I want you to minister in the, you know, the Riviera or something like that. And Peter would be like, that's a really good decision that you've just made, Jesus. You know, but it's like wherever he calls, and it's like, well, if that's where Jesus wants me, 
that's where I need to be. Will you follow him? If so, does he get to say where? Even if it's the opposite of the American dream, even if in the eyes of the world it seems like failure, it seems foolish, can he say, follow me in any and every direction? He is good. Is he asking you to follow him to a place that you're struggling to follow him? And man, I, I don't think, uh, Lord willing, not pridefully, I think the Lord seeks to crush that out of all of us, but I say yes to both of those. I, I do. I say yes to both of those. I do love him, and I will follow him. Now, I'm going to need every one of you to help me. I'm going to need every one of you to lift up my arms as I lift up your arms as we do this together, but I'm saying yes to these. I do love him, and I will follow him. And I, I ask and invite and implore every one of us to say yes to both of those. I do love you. I really do. And I will follow you. Now, you have to give me the strength. You have to give me the power. You have to make it happen. Uh, I don't want to just perform. That's going to be, you know, we need to abide in Jesus to, per, to do anything he calls us to do in his strength. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit to be our counselor, to empower us with giftings, to lead us, to whisper in our ear, this is the way, follow me. But would we say yes, that we do love him, and yes, that we will follow him? And if, if you walked in the door and you're like, I was a strong no to at least one of those, would you be a strong yes right now? You don't have to do anything fancy other than just let him know, yes, I do love you, Jesus, and yes, I will follow you. The bird is excited, it seems like, for all of this. So, and maybe today is the day that you get saved, that you give your life to Jesus, where you're like, yeah, it was crazy, there's bird flying around, there's a lot of things that could have distracted me, but like, Jesus got me. He got my attention, and I'm his given my life to him. I do love him and I will follow him. A powerful and a beautiful expression of that is communion. Jesus gave us this as a tangible way to commune with him as we're doing these things. We will be with him one day face to face, but until we are, we do this as often as we do it in remembrance of him, communing with him, and so the way that we do it here is uh, walk up, and I think Kevin and Mary are serving today. Um, they'll have plastic gloves on, and they'll tear the bread. And if you just walk up with your hands like this, they'll give you the, the bread and say, this is the body of Jesus given for you. Wine or juice, obey your conscience there uh, as the blood of Jesus. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But the warnings in Scripture of communion aren't towards people who aren't followers of Jesus, the warnings in Scripture are those who do love Jesus, who are following him, but who rush to the table before actually spending some time meeting with him and letting him open our eyes to things that we need to have our eyes open to, um, convicting us of things that we need to be convicted of, maybe encouraging us in areas we need to be encouraged. So it's super appropriate to spend some moments meeting with him, uh, then we'll come down the center aisle together. We'll take the elements, uh, hold on to them, go back to our seats, and we'll take it together as family. And if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, this would be an incredible time to do that. Uh, we had a person uh, a few weeks ago give their life to Jesus 
uh, then came and took communion for the first time as a follower of Jesus. And so, uh, so I invite you to do that as well. So let's come. Let's come to the Lord.